When unidentified remains are found, we have some expectations about how those remains will be handled. Though we might not know the details, we expect police will handle them with care and respect. We've all heard stories of unidentified people being buried under headstones with John or Jane Doe written in place of their real names, or heard stories about how cases were solved decades later. That isn't the case here. In the 1970s, the remains of two unidentified women and one unidentified man were found in Washington's Pierce County in what appears to be three unrelated cases. And what happens to the remains after they're in police custody is shocking and defies belief. This is their story. Hi, I'm Vanessa. And I'm Amy. And you're listening to She Goes by Jane. At the end of this episode and every episode, we will be joined by a special guest who will read an original poem by Amy Baker about the women we're featuring. This week, we'll be joined by singer-songwriter and one of CMT's next women of country, Stephanie Quayle. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Amy. Do you ever think about unidentified bodies after they're found and they're not identified for a while? Do you ever think about like what happens to those bodies? I guess I hope that they're buried in maybe a grave or something with some sort of marker that says that it's an unknown person found on this such and such a date. That's what I would hope. That is the case for a lot of unidentified people. So John and Jane Doe's, it's kind of how they're they're dealt with because even though they're not identified, there's this idea of treating their remains with some respect and care. Right. So I'm I'm glad that that's what happens to them. Sometimes they're held in evidence while they're awaiting being identified. So not buried, but sort of held on to. That makes sense too if it's still being investigated because wouldn't they need that for like matches of either DNA or dental records or something like that? Right. The story that we're talking about today is an example of neither of those things happening. What happened? Let's get into it. Okay, so to begin with, this episode might get a little bit confusing because we are, in fact, talking about three unidentified individuals. And this is like the story of what happened to them and how the police have failed them and their families. So we're going to try to handle all three of them with care. Okay. This story does not take place in 1996, but 1996 is when the story really breaks about what happened to these bodies, and it's because of the work of Victor Gonzalez for the News Tribune out of Tacoma, Washington. So I want to give him props for the work that he did on this story. So we are dealing with Pierce County, Washington, the Pierce County Sheriff's Department, and what happened to three unidentified persons, which are two women and one man. And all three of these were found in Western Washington in the 1970s. Were they found together or were they a little bit apart? They're separate. Okay. Before I get too far into what happened to the bodies, I want to establish who we're talking about and the details of what we know about them. So we're going to Saturday, December 11th, 1976. There is a pheasant hunter who found the body or remains of a woman who was dumped in a hunting area just south of McKenna Tanwick's Road in McKenna, Washington. And so for clarity, I'm going to refer to her as McKenna Jane Doe. 
So she was never given a Jane Doe name. She was never given a name even afterwards. Is that typical? So sometimes they will give John and Jane Doe's aliases or names to help kind of differentiate them. And so she is largely just referred to as a Jane Doe. But, you know, because we're dealing with three people here, she's going to be McKenna Jane Doe. Okay. I want to be as respectful as possible to her because what happens to her is not respectful at all. And I don't want to get into graphic details, but it's important to note that her remains are not found fully intact. What does that mean? They only recovered most of her body, but not all of it. Okay. Is it just because of the time it's been there? Like exposed to the elements? They think it was like likely scattered due to environmental impacts. So not human impact, which I know that we've talked about that in a previous episode. Right. Right. And police noted at the time that these remains didn't have any evidence that the bones were like severed in any way by a human. By, yes. Okay. So if any scattering would have been weather or animals, that kind of thing. That seems to be the case based on what we know. Okay. We know very limited details about McKenna Jane Doe. She was white. She had auburn hair. She was likely in her early to mid-20s. And she was wearing greenish-blue denim jacket, pinkish-red denim jeans, and the bottom of a tennis shoe was found nearby that they think might have been hers. At the time that she was found, the coroner who looked at her remains determined that McKenna Jane Doe's time of death was likely in the previous four months. It's standard practice when there's a John or Jane Doe, an unidentified body, that they're run against who are the like missing people, particularly locally, that might be this person. Okay. And so she was discovered by the pheasant hunter. Yes. Did he have a dog? I mean, I think pheasant hunters often have dogs. Was it actually the dog who found her? I meant to send you this TikTok of a forensic anthropologist who was talking about, I think like that like 40% of remains are, are found by dog walkers. Are doggy detectives. Yes. But not my dog. He will not do this to me. One of mine would. So anyway, her remains are run against missing persons reports. And there are two missing college-aged women, Donna Manson and Georgian Hawkins. They had both gone missing in 1974. We're in 76, but didn't the police say that this body was only about four months old? Right. So they determined that based on those kind of timings, You know, it is unlikely that McKenna Jane Doe is either Donna or Georgian. But they look at those two specifically. Those two are connected to a well-known serial killer whose name I won't mention here. But they're in the news quite a bit. So that's one of the first places they go. So we know it's not either of them, but we're not any closer to finding her identity. On January 11th, so we're... One month after her body was found, McKenna Jane Doe was moved to the sheriff's property room. Is that normal? Every sort of jurisdiction is going to have their own kind of rules and regulations and practices about where bodies are moved. But we seem to be able to tell from the practice of Pierce County, we know that they've got kind of like a certain thing going on. So... In the 1970s, the coroner's office, her first destination, was relatively small. And because of its size and lack of storage, 
it would not have been unusual for her to go to the sheriff's property room instead, which is located at the county city building. So the handling of McKenna Jane Doe seemed to be following like an established pattern for them. Okay. But we do know that she wouldn't have been held in the coroner's office, particularly if they didn't have room, because they just don't have that kind of storage there. And that's kind of where we're going to put her story on pause at the moment. Okay. Okay. On March 28th, 1978, so we're a year later, two women are out picking mushrooms in a remote area near Elbe, um, and they find the partial remains of what's determined to be a white male. We're going to refer to him as John Doe. The details about him are scarce, but we know John Doe was white, about 30 years old, and about six feet tall. And there were no clothing items found, but there was a ring made out of two strands of braided metal. And when the dental records were compared to known missing persons cases, no matches were made. So John Doe's remains were also moved to the property room where they were stored in a cardboard box. Okay, he's at the same property room as McKenna Jane Doe? Yes. Now, I forgot to ask, with, with either of these, do they feel like it was a murder? Is there a possibility he just died there? There, There's always that possibility. There just doesn't seem to be much information about them, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. Okay. So then later that year, August 29th, 1978, there's a military police officer and his friend, and they discover the skull of another woman southwest of Eatonville, where Washington 7 crosses the Marshall River. And police were able to find more remains upriver, including some of her clothing. And we're going to call her Eatonville, Jane Doe. Okay. So how did they discover her? One of them thinks that he's his foot is kicking a, a rock and it was... Oh, no. He kicked her skull. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I'm sure that did not make him feel good. No. Always look down. Always while look. Hiking. Eh. Don't kick things. Don't kick things. Don't kick things. They determined that the victim, Eatonville Jane Doe, was white between the ages of 12 and 17, about 5'7". She had brownish hair and what sounds like some blonder highlights in them. Um, and her hair was long, like 13 to 17 inches long. They find nearby a multicolored striped t-shirt, which is going to become important later. So put a pin in that. Blue jeans, a sweater, a jacket, size 7 underwear, and rubber-soled sports shoes in a size 6 or 7. Eatonville Jane Doe, because you asked earlier about what might have happened. For her, she likely suffered a blow to the head that was non-fatal, but there was some damage there. And the damage to her skull wasn't when the man who found her kicked it? They don't believe so, no. Okay. This multicolored t-shirt actually becomes a key detail that people have come to over and over and over. Earlier, I mentioned that McKenna Jane Doe was ruled out as being Donna Manson. Right. She was not. Right. So to cover a little bit about Donna Manson, she was a 19-year-old college freshman at Evergreen State University when she went missing on March 12th, 1974. She was last seen at 7 p.m. heading to a jazz concert on campus, and one of the articles that she was wearing was a multicolored striped shirt. Do other details about the Eatonville Jane Doe fit with Donna Manson? Eatonville Jane Doe, they were putting the age between 12 and 17, 
And Donna Manson is 19. That's why I ask. Donna Manson is 19. So a little bit older, but that could just be a variation. Um, she also has longer brown hair. So that seems to fit with the possibility here. Okay. Unlike McKenna Jane Doe, the first Jane Doe, Eatonville Jane Doe's dental records were not compared to Donna Manson's dental records. Why didn't they compare them? It's unclear. There's a King County, so, so a different county. There's a detective who's working on Donna's case, and he is calling Pierce County to trying to get them to look at Eatonville Jane Doe to see if it could be Donna. But his calls are not being answered. Do we know why they're not calling back? It seems to be an oversight, but there's going to be a lot of oversights from this sheriff's department at the time. Okay. It just doesn't seem like a great way of doing things. So like our other does, Eatonville Jane Doe is not identified. In theory, it makes sense that if they transferred the other remains to the property room, that that is also where she would have gone. But in her case, there's no records of where her remains were stored. Okay, so we have two so far in the same property room, mm -hmm. and we don't know where hers. Right, so there's missing records. Based on past practice, it seems likely that she would have ended up in the property room. But what ends up happening is that all three of our does go missing from the police department. So the two that were previously in the property room are also missing at this point? Right. So what we're talking about here is that these remains should have been held in the property room at the sheriff's department if that was their practice. But at some point, all three of them go missing again. So they are missing unidentified people. Where would they just end up? So that is what launches an investigation. So in Victor Gonzalez's reporting in 1996, we learn that in 1988, so a good 10 years after Eatonville Jane Doe is found, the sheriff's department has launched an internal investigation. And part of what they're looking at is where did we put the remains of these three individuals? And at this point, they can't contact the people that were there previously? Well, it seems like a lot of what is happening is people avoiding taking ownership of where those three went. So let me back up here a little. The reason that this internal investigation starts is because there's a new sheriff. His name is Chuck Robbins, and he had taken over, and he was concerned about how things were being handled in the property room. As he should be. Right. It's unclear if they knew the remains of the three unidentified individuals were missing at this point in time, but what they find during this investigation is that they're not there. And they really hone in on the John Doe's remains because those had been placed there in 1978 and there was documentation that that's where they went. And during this process, they interviewed a male employee who is unnamed, and that male employee said that he actually disposed of John Doe's remains. What do you mean when you say disposed of his remains? I mean, quite literally disposed of. We know that two of the three Doe's ended up in a Tacoma area landfill. That's awful. That's what this man said? Right. 
So this unnamed male employee reports that in May of 1985, he was ordered to dispose of some bones. He says that he didn't know what kind of bones that they were, just that he'd been tasked with cleaning the shelf that they were on. And the box of John Doe's remains were placed in a trash bag and then taken to this landfill. That's horrible. Right, because this is not how we would assume these processes would go, and for the most part is not how this would happen. Well, it sounds like he didn't even know what he was throwing out at the time either, so things were probably not clearly marked. Right. In fairness to this employee, bringing evidence to the landfill was also a common practice. There was even a section of the dump that was reportedly used for the disposal of items from the sheriff's department. Part of the process was for the landfill employee to destroy the items brought in from the police department by like running them over with like a large piece of equipment. Because it's evidence or do they just do this? Well, a lot might have been brought in, for instance, is things like marijuana grow products like or paraphernalia so like they just don't want anyone to get their hands on it so like they would just drive this big vehicle back and forth over it to kind of like break it down but in this case we're breaking down human remains so there's no way of going back and retrieving them no even though it's only three years at this point right yeah so this is in 1985 he during the internal investigation in 1988 states that, so you're right, three years have passed since he placed John Doe's remains there. Was it two bodies or just one? Two bodies. So it was John Doe and was it the McKenna Jane Doe's? Yeah, so we know that this is John Doe because this is, the employee has made clear during the internal investigation that those were the ones that he took. But for McKenna Jane Doe, so the first woman who was found, there's a paper trail of documents that were signed by the property room manager. And one of them is dated January 16th, 1979. And it shows that the property, or in this case, McKenna's remains were destroyed. So they weren't done in 1985? No. Okay, so hers were previously destroyed. Right. We'll be back in a moment. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins. Convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh -huh. You go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done. And that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? 
What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts. So do we do we only discover that McKenna Jane Doe's remains were destroyed in the 70s because of talking about it again in 1988? Right. So this seems to be what they found out during their internal investigation in 1988, that there were remains and that they were destroyed. Okay. And they do not know where Eatonville Jane Doe's remains are at this point either. So less is specifically known about her remains. So the coroner's reports for Eatonville, Jane Doe are missing. And there's an index card that states the date and place Eatonville was found, but not much else. They do seem to have some files of um, what looks like handwritten notes about her dental records. So not the dental records themselves, but some notes that were taken detailing what was on those. Okay, and she's the one with the striped shirt as well. She's the one with the striped shirt. And so when investigators are looking into this, when this story breaks in 1996, do this reporting, it seems like this sheriff's department was put under pressure to do more about her case to see if she might be Donna Manson. They finally compare the information that they have of Donna Manson's dental records with the handwritten notes about Eatonville Jane Doe's dental records. But again, we're comparing handwritten notes up against actual images. And we still don't have physical evidence. Right. It does seem that there are some photographs of the clothing from Eatonville Jane Doe. So there is some stuff about her. They show Donna Manson's parents the photographs of the multicolored striped shirt, finally, and Donna Manson's mother feels like very certain that that shirt was not a match for her daughter. But we're talking at this point, what, a good 20 years later. Right. But maybe, maybe she would know. Maybe that would be burned into her memory at this point. Right. Like the, because it does become like the last article of clothing her daughter was seen in. Right. Even if she wasn't there to see it, like she knows probably the shirt. Probably. It's really important to take a pause here to say that what is happening at this department does not seem to be following like any sort of established procedures about how bodies and remains should be handled. This is not typical. Right. So there are state laws that dictate how bodies should be handled and agencies have responsibilities towards that. And it is also very strange that Eatonville Jane Doe was not compared to Donna Manson in the first place. So. Right. Even if it isn't her, even if her mom is sure that the shirt isn't hers, right. that comparison should, should have still been made. Exactly. So we have some like massive failings here. And the failings, would they even be in, like the majority of these failings happened in the 70s. Would right. that still be below the standard of what the other police departments were expecting at that point? Even though it was the 70s, it's not as though we have like a ton of cases from the 70s about throwing bodies into or remains into landfills, for instance. Right. We probably don't have that even 20 or 50 years before that, right? Like people probably just didn't throw human remains away like garbage. Right. Right. So at the time this story breaks in 1996, no one is admitting that they were the person who ordered the destruction of those remains. Like, Do you blame them? Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't admit to that. 
The coroner at the time the bodies were found, Jack Devler, he was interviewed for the original news story. And he says that he was surprised that this is what happened. But he also counters that to say that this is like a matter of judgment. And he states, if you did all you could do with them, the reports are all written and everything, and they, meaning the bones, serve no more purpose than... That's like a very technical thought about that, though. Like, maybe the remains would serve no more purpose for the case, but they are still human remains and should be treated, like we said at the beginning, with some sort of respect. Right. I mean, I'm guessing, like, if you're a coroner or you're working in that space, like, you develop, like, a different way of thinking about remains and bodies in that process. But still, it's a very clinical approach to this. And, you know, that's 1996 when he says this. And I don't think that he was prepared for the huge changes that come with the identification of unidentified remains that have happened in the last, say, even five years. Are you talking about like with DNA? Right. So with DNA, so you would need the remains or some product, right? We would be able to do genetic genealogy which would help determine who those person's relatives are and eventually identify them. And because those bodies aren't held in property anymore or even buried, that process is not going to happen. Right. And we've discussed before, just you and I, about how those databases that we put in our own genetic material, like 23andMe and and that kind of thing, how that can actually become a tool, right? Well, so it's important to note that both 23andMe and Ancestry, which are kind of like the top places that people are using to get their DNA looked at to find their relatives, those are like commercial enterprises. And so those are not used by law enforcement. You have to upload them to additional sites for that to happen. So if we want to be helping out in that, what would we, what site would we go to? So if people want to do that, um, which I highly encourage them to do so, you would upload your information to say something like GEDmatch. GEDmatch? Mm-hmm. G-E-D-match.com. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so if, if this isn't standard practice, the way things were handled in the 70s, what was going on there? What was happening in that station at the time? So it's important to note that the sheriff's department at this time was in turmoil for several different reasons that I'm going to get into. And we know that in the internal investigation in 1988, they realized that there was already concerns with the handling of things in the property room. It's also important to note that even though they did find issues with the handling of these remains, that they didn't really make it public. So they found this out and they held on to that information. And it was only until 1996 when it got investigated that they were like, oh, yeah. So they knew things were happening. There was internal turmoil going on. Yeah. So they just let like all of this stuff get in the way of doing things the right way. Right. And it's because there's a true crime fanatic, Corey Bober, who he had been following unsolved homicides and disappearances involving women. And he noticed two unidentified women who we've been talking about who were unaccounted for by Pierce County. So he's like documenting and going through and he's like, wait a minute, what about these two? And that was in the 90s? Yes. And he talks to like a worker in the department who says, oh, yeah, they were thrown in the landfill. And Corey says, I've never taken the term throwaways seriously until I found out the Pierce County Sheriff's Department actually trashed these people. That's awful. So I don't want to get too far into it because our focus is on these 
particularly two women and one man. But Pierce County and the surrounding areas was a pretty complicated place in the 1970s. Like, first, there's, like, a flurry of women who go missing between February and July 1974, so just before all those bodies are found. And that starts when Linda Healy goes missing from her room in a rental she shares with some college friends. And then she's quickly followed by Donna, the girl that we talked about earlier, Susan Rancourt, Brendan Ball, Georgian Hawkins, Janice Ott, Denise Nasland. So it's, like, woman after woman after woman is going missing. All missing. Plus, there's been a murder of a 14-year-old girl named Catherine Devine in late 1973 and a 14-year-old Brenda Baker in 1974. And not to mention that, there's also been a series of attacks on women who have survived. So this is not a great place at this time. I would not want to live in Washington State in the 1970s. And then to top that off, November 1978. So... Shortly after Eatonville Jane Doe is found, there's a results of a 13-month investigation come in. And the Pierce County Sheriff, a man by the name of George Janovich, is charged by the FBI for racketeering along with 14 other men from Pierce County. And Janovich and seven of these men are arrested immediately. This group is known as the Enterprise and was led by John Joseph Carbone, who I guess was a mobster of sorts. So now we know kind of why evidence wasn't a priority at this time. Yeah, so it seems as though the sheriff has been a bit distracted. So the charges for this group are numerous. It's arson, assault, extortion, bribery, attempted murder. This was all to control the county's topless dancing tavern business. Well, of course. Of God, course. This is not a really great group of people, is it? No, they were actively engaged in insurance fraud, protection, prostitution, and illegal gambling. And they're busy people. They are. They are just running this county, right? Some of the Enterprise ended up pleading guilty and flipping on the other members of the Enterprise, but not the Pierce County Sheriff, who was found guilty at trial and sentenced to 12 years. So in that time, like, so he's sentenced to 12 years for all of these illegal things he's doing. Was there ever any punishment for how he handled his job at the police department? I mean, there seems to be, like, very little fallout for that. But as the sheriff, this would have been under his purview, right? Like, he might not have been the person who ordered the destruction of those remains, but, like, he is ultimately responsible for that. Right. It's not his order, but it could just be his negligence. Yeah, and so while what happened to the Enterprise and the sheriff doesn't have to do specifically with the the women and the man whose remains were destroyed. Or missing. Or missing. Right. Well, we do know, yeah. Eatonville, Eatonville. Jane Doe, is she still just missing? Still just missing. To this day. So we don't know if she ended up in the landfill or not. Right. Right. We do know that based on what's going on, it is chaotic at this sheriff's department. The county later tries to fix this by changing how someone becomes sheriff. So you see these like processes, like this understanding that like whatever has been going on at this department isn't working. But also we have this like continued silence. Like they did know in 1988 that some stuff and handling, you know, in the previous 
years did not go smoothly and things weren't properly accounted for, but they did not take that extra step of owning that mistake publicly. I bet now they take all the extra steps of making sure this doesn't happen again in the future. One would really hope so. What are the hopes in the future of actually finding out what happened to the Eatonville Jane Doe's remains? Like, are we just without hope at this point? I think the chances are pretty minimal for any of these cases, and that includes Eatonville, just because we don't have documentation of what happened to her after the coroner's office, but we do know her remains were not found in the property room. And so it is likely that they have also been destroyed in some manner. And so we'll probably never find out what happened to any one of these three individuals or who they are. You know, like usually we can talk about like what our hopes are or how, you know, technologies will change or, you know, what chances there are. But in this case, like specifically because of their their negligence in this process, those remains will not be identified. The best they can hope for is maybe like a likely guess. Like we think that this might be a person. But there could be three families out there who will just never have answers of what happened to their loved one in the 1970s. We are now going to listen to notes from the Pierce County Sheriff's Department, read by country singer-songwriter Stephanie Quayle. We were honored to work with Stephanie during the making of our documentary, She. Stephanie co-wrote and performed Jane, which was the opening track in She. You can stream She and listen to Jane wherever you get your movies and music. Or follow the links on our website, shegoesbyjanepodcast.com. Notes from the Pierce County Sheriff's Department. We forgot the beat of memory. The way we once leaned back on tilt-a-whirls, hair trailing on the ground as the greening world collapsed into one long constellation of light. How the terror ache of desire seemed to slip free from skin. We forgot what we once asked of your bodies. Tell us how your bristled length spiraled in water, how deep the thickets on the side of a mountain are in summer, how the dust of planetary objects can feel like love. We forgot the way our hearts are strung to yours, the jungle heated touch of our hands on your hands so that we no longer knew, how the body can be landfilled knobs of vertebrae and the firethorn sharp curve of rib. We forgot how we lost you. For more information about our show or to check out other shows on the network, please visit evergreenpodcast.com. Bye, Vanessa. Bye, Amy. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door.
Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects. Hi, I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, (laughs) but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. You can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us. Mm-hmm.